All right, let's pray. It, it is the, we're not going to say the prayer we said it this morning, but it is the feast day of St. Peter, so that's always nice. Merciful God, loving Father, who governs all things in heaven and on earth and makes everything new through your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Transform our sinful nature and all our doings by the power of your Holy Spirit that we please you and someday attain perfect joy through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, thanks for coming back. Uh, the great danger now is that we're, will you lean right behind you and give those to some of your friends? The great danger is you've heard these stories before, so hopefully at least you can um, at least remember them and then maybe think about them in a different way. We'll see. Did you read or didn't you read? Was it too short a notice? Did anybody read? Too short a notice. Yeah, we got it. We're a little, you know. We do things a little more by the seat of our pants these days, but um, you know the story, so it won't it won't hurt you too much. Although there are some interesting bits in there. There you go. See if that's in. Uh, yep, there's some more there. Sorry, here's you go. Just one. Yep. Uh, you know, let's read from the book because it's easiest. Uh, if you have your book, spin it open. Does anybody still need a book? We have one or two left, which is just where we want to be. Um, spin your book open to, I don't know, wherever that is, chapter 22. And then, um, what is it? You're a good person. Befriend me as a neighbor. 284. Okay, so um, you know this story a gazillion times. You've heard this story, but, you know, it's good to see a couple of new things maybe. One is um, this rhetorical format. People didn't have books, you know, they didn't have catechisms. What they did is they listened to stories and they repeated them until um, they could remember them. So you probably long ago far away in your first speech class in college, you learned that one of the ancient ways to give a speech was to tie every thought to as if you're walking through your house, your first point is as you come through the door, your second point is in the, in the narthex, you know, the third point is when you turn right into the living room, the fourth point is when, you, you know, so there were these ways of remembering. Um, that's very common in scripture, and of course this is one of those two, so there's seven points, great thing about seven, it's not just that it's a perfect number, although it is a perfect number, the great thing about seven is it has a middle, one, two, three, middle, three, two, one, middle, okay, so um, you can see that on 283 and how the questioning works. Is that the page I want to be on? Just a second. 285. Actually, actually no, I actually want to um, push it to 291. There's a couple of ways. Uh, and it does work with the questions and the answers, but it's even more interesting with the, um, with the things on the side. So 291. Uh, a man was going down to Jerusalem. This, we're just doing the story. I mean, I, I realize the other part. Um, a man was going down to Jerusalem. He fell among robbers. They stripped him. They beat him. They departed, leaving him half dead. So you have this steal and injure. Now that goes um, on, the, on the bottom then. So that's number one. Then you go down. The next day he took out and gave two denarii to the manager and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will on my return repay you. Which of these three then do you think proved neighbor? Okay, so um, stealing and beating him goes with spending and healing him, right? 
So those are the, that's the beginning and end. Then um, two and six go together. Now by coincidence, a certain priest was going down the road. When they saw him, he passed by on the other side. Um, so, and you read, <coughs> if you had the chance to read, you read that a priest at this time was rich usually. Um, and so he wouldn't have been, he himself would not have been walking, probably. Probably he would have been riding. Um, so he has the means to make accommodation, but he doesn't make it. And we can talk about a little while why he doesn't make it. The point is the priest could have done something and he didn't do it. He has the means to do it. He has both cash and a ride, okay? Co by coincidence, a certain priest was going down the road. He saw him. He passed by on the other side. Don't touch him. Leave him alone. Um, sin of, you know, omission, if you will. That goes with six. The Samaritan bound him up on his own riding animal and led him to an inn and took care of him. So first, steal and injure, and then the end, pay and heal. Then see him and do nothing, and uh, see him and do something. Likewise, also a Levite came to that place. So this would be like uh, in the early church, there are you know bishops, uh, pastors, and bi bishops, priests, and deacons. Um, in the uh, uh, Jewish church, there would have been um, priests, Levites, and normal lay folk, right? So um, sort of this one, two, three, one, two, three, and that's how the order goes in this story too. One, two, three, one, two, three. So the Levite came to that place. <clears throat> when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He sees him. He does nothing. That goes with point number five. Um, the Samaritan went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And you had that very interesting thing about how you bind things up. Did you find that's interesting? If you have a bad wound, there's, there's an argument about whether you bound him first and then poured in the oil and the wine, or whether you poured in the oil and wine and you bound him. And it can be, um, it, it, it twists and turns. He's really fine. You don't, don't go. Say, he's, he's, he's fine. Actually, we'd like to hear him cry. He's got a little voice, you know. That's good. Um, the um, Greek is malleable, but maybe the Arabic isn't. Who knows what the language spoken probably was Arabic. Uh, the point is, at least the, the explanation he gives, which is kind of interesting, which is for a superficial wound, you would um, cleanse and treat. The wine does what? Antiseptic, if you will. The oil is? S softens, yeah, keeps it soft. And you've seen, have you seen these pictures lately on the Internet where the big dust storms come? They keep taking pictures of them and showing them where they're, you know, you know, half a mile high and ten miles wide. Have you seen this? There's probably been about four of them in the last month. It must be the cool thing. They keep popping up. Um, they've been in Australia. There was one that went by Phoenix the same way. So these dust storms come in. This is why in the Middle East um, things are dry. So people are always a little bit brittle and skin is cracked and uncomfortable. And also it's why people go blind a lot in the Middle East. That's why there's so many blind stories in the Bible. People went blind a lot because of the grit that got in their eyes. And then it scars your corneas, and you eventually, you know, you can't see over and over again if you're out in the, out in the sand or where the grit's blowing. It was just kind of a normal thing. So anyway, this was, I mean, it's clever. Um, if you had a minor wound, first you'd wash it and then put it, salve on it, put oil. So first the wine, then the oil, then you'd bind it. But if you had a big wound, and this is what you would do too, if you're kind of bleeding to death, what do you do first? You put the tourniquet on it, right? You wrap it. And then they would pour the oil and wine through the bandage. Very clever, right? So there's something I didn't know. That was kind of fun. All right.
But then, of course, the middle bit, um, and this is what you're supposed to hear, you know, the center of the story. So it kind of goes like this, you know, one, seven, two, six, three, five, and then here's the thing, you know, what's the big point? A certain Samaritan traveling came to him, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. So one of the things it tells you, the story by the way it's written or the way it's told, tells you what the main point is. The main point is compassion. And the oddity, of course, is that this Samaritan, whom people hate, uh, whom Jews at best would consider, you know, half, you know, half true. Do you know how you get a Samaritan? Anybody know? What's a Samaritan? God, we should remember that. Mixed blood, mixed race, yeah. So you get some Jewish. It's not just a pure gen- Gentile. You remember? Yeah, right. So you've got some extra folks, yes, right. And you remember the um, woman at the well? And so remember, she, what did she say to Jesus? Do you remember? She said, your folks, go ahead. Yeah, where should we worship? She said, your folks are down in Jerusalem, and our folks are? Yeah, Mount Gerizim, and you can still go to Mount Gerizim, and you can still, although I heard they're getting a little bit perturbed by it because so many tourists are showing up, but you can still go watch them, you know, slaughter the beast for Passover and catch the, you can still you can still see it in Mount Gerizim, apparently. Um, so the Samaritans are still there. I mean, so you, what you basically have is you have somebody who's a mixed blood, not a pure Jew, and that's, well said, sinful Intrinsically sinful, right? Right, because you're not a um, you're not a pure-blooded Jew, and you worship in the wrong place. And to touch such a person defiles you. And um, do you, can you remember you who read? You remember what the? Can you describe what the priest was facing? It was actually he was very kind to the priest. I thought um, he has this ethical dilemma. What's the ethical dilemma? If you're a priest, good. So if you touch him, you're unclean. And And you've already been there how long? Two weeks. So basically, priests. Remember, they would cast lots, and they would. You know, it's just like the guys who serve at the altar here. You cast lots. It's your week. You go up and serve for two weeks. So you're away from your family. You're away from home. You're serving in the temple. This is why, for example. Um, the story of John the Baptizer, his father, Zechariah, was a priest. And remember what it says? It was his turn by lot to serve at the altar, right? So this is very common stuff. So anyway, he'd been, already been there two weeks. If he touches the guy, then he's got to go back, right, for a week, get cleaned up. And you, if you've you know, seen pictures of baths, you had to take baths and you had to... Um, what else besides having to take... What are the other troubles? Yeah. which is always nice. That's always nice, um, which is, you know, the way Sunday school used to be. So, um, yeah, you could, you could get damaged a little bit. Go ahead, what else? Go ahead. Right, so he not only makes himself unclean, but he sort of makes his family unclean or at least outcast. So he's been up working for a couple of weeks, but he can't cash his check, basically. Right, he can't eat from the ties. What else? Anything else? I don't remember reading that, but I was reading quickly. 
Yeah, the question is what you have to do. The other thing is, remember, and if the guy actually dies, he doesn't know if the guy's dead or not. So is the guy dead or is he not dead? If he's dead and he touches him, then he has to rend his robes. Now you've ripped your clothes. Your wife is cranky at you. Plus you're sinning because you're not supposed to destroy valuable things, and a priest normally has valuable stuff that he's wearing. So, you know, uh, you know so it's, it's, in some ways you can couch this in a way that the guy actually does have an issue about whether or not he should engage a dead body or engage somebody who's not a Jew. Yeah, he probably, he probably gets a little more, he probably gets a little more slack than we think, I guess, yeah. Although, um, Yes, right. Yes, right. There's all sorts of logical, there's all kinds of logical reasons why we can't help other people, right? So, um, and the question then brings your logic into play, or sort of is what's wrong with your logic. So let's go back to the beginning of the story then. That's a very good way to do it. So you have this um, interchange between Jesus and a lawyer. It's set within a couple other interchanges. So Jesus is having a tough day, right? So um, he's trying to teach, and then um, normally, you remember, how does it work with a rabbi and a disciple? The rabbi sits, and now, now he said that people actually stand to, to, around to listen, right? So the rabbi gets to sit, you know, he sort of relaxes, and then people stand so they can hear. Yes. I'm sorry, yes, that's right. They stand up if they want to ask a question. And that's out of respect, right? So there's this nose-to-noseness. Um, but do you remember what he said uh, about this particular lawyer? He does stand up to ask a question, but he said that's a head fake. Because there's, he said anybody with Middle Eastern ears would have heard the disrespect in the question. Or they would have seen that there was trying to be a trap laid down. And often, you know, the scriptures will say this, hey, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to, they're trying to trap Jesus, or they come to trap Jesus, or somebody go trap Jesus, or somebody go listen, or somebody ask. So it's clearly um, a disrespectful question. So very practically, I give you a couple of things about testing, you know, the teacher. One is, um, you know, you just can't help people who won't be helped. So your doctor can tell you, you should go do this, whatever that happens to be, you know, eat less, stop smoking, get more sleep, exercise. And that's what all of you do, right? Yeah, you all do exactly what your doctor tells you. Um, alternately, you self-medicate on Google. I mean, I know how this works. So, I mean, that is actually the choice here. This is a very real choice. You can either listen to Jesus as the teacher or you can self-medicate your choice. But the question is, you can't help people who won't be helped. Why is that? Because nothing good happens by force. You can force people for a little while to do things, but at some point they explode. And that's not the same as helping people. That's the difference between enslaving them and helping them. And then I just give you the last thing, and you should always remember this. Um, The penalty for not listening is to remain the way you are. And sometimes you pray for people's pain to increase so they'll change. Pain is actually a very helpful thing in some ways. Many people who won't react to logic or to, to, to thinking, you know, um, those same people will react to emotion or to pain. So sometimes you have to appeal 
at the level of motion. We have to peel at the level of pain in order for people to change. There's very, I'm struck by this. Um, you know, the longer I live, the more irrational the world becomes. And especially the postmodern world. The post, you know, I love the postmodern world for many, many reasons. Because they're given to things of the heart, because souls are open, because they're given to what's mysterious, because they love what is beautiful. There's not this hold card, cold, hard rationality that doesn't leave a place for faith or for Jesus. On the other hand, um, postmoderns make exactly the same mistake that moderns did, which is they are, they are the final arbiter of truth. It's just that moderns measured by their head, postmoderns measure by their own heart. But what do you know about people? They are corrupt, yes, sinful, both in head and in heart. And so Luther, one of the good things about Lutherans is Lutherans have always said people need both their head and their heart redeemed, right? So in one way, we've just moved in our world, we've just moved the decision-making from um, the head to the heart. Do you have kids? I mean, ask your kids. Your kids um, will not be persuaded. It's interesting. We're coming into a, we're coming into a non-persuadable generation. And you early postmoderns, good luck. Because <clears throat> you're mildly unpersuadable, but your children, Penelope. Oh, my goodness, you know. There won't be even any point your mother talking to you. It won't make any difference. Nobody will be thinking. Um, I just read again yesterday, the, you know, the thing about, oh, there was, where did I read that? Oh, there was a Wall Street Journal editorial yesterday about why we shouldn't legalize marijuana, written by a guy who runs an addiction place. One of the points, of course, he made is that one of the big problems with, and he said, I've always learned this about boys, but he said it is true for all people, which is by puberty the emotional part of your brain is completely formed and seeks pleasure, right? So like that's like 12, 13, 14. You know, you're the, the, the pleasure point of your brain is completely formed and ready to go. And of course, the emotional or the rational point of your brain kicks in 20, 21, for boys like 25. So they have like 10 years where they're just completely stupid and they are completely run by good luck. I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't even know what to tell you. Uh, be patient and, uh, you know, just try to sleep at night. Because the thing is, is they have, they, they, I mean, boys have 10 years, but apparently it's true for girls too. They have 10 years where, you know, they have no rational guide on their pleasure centers. Or basically the, the, he, the head is complete. It's like they're headless. You know, I, I mean, it's only in, it's all, it's just completely, you know. Well, go ahead. Yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah, it's just like there's no, right, so good luck. Yes, right, guilt. Or by any, I'm glad I'm going to be dead, that's all I can say. Because I'm worn out, I can't take any more. Yes, right, it still it hurts you. Right. Right. So, um, I mean, good luck. Because because what has to happen is you can't find a way. So, uh, actually, so let's just let's just think about the church for a while. So, um, when I came here, you know, uh, there was a, there were this is actually true, there were initial comments about my sermon, the sermons that they were a form of laziness because they didn't go 30 minutes. 
Here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's harder to make it short. It is harder to make it short. Here's the other thing. There's nobody that can listen for 30 minutes. And if they did, it doesn't make any difference. There are very few people for whom listening changes. Very few people below, you know, 30, nobody below 20. I mean, listening is, when I get the, you know, kids write sermon notes now, if they get like two coherent sentences, I'm thinking, I'm calling that a victory. Because they just don't, they got those tiny little attention spans, you know. 40 seconds, 30 seconds. You know, it's just like commercials. Commercials used to be 60 seconds, 30 seconds. Now they're 15 seconds. And they show it to you twice. That's the most interesting thing. It's the first one and the, la- the third one in a minute. You're like, because you can't, you know. Yeah. Marilyn Graham. She never turns them in. One seven two six three five and in the middle. If you listen, sermons here often begin and end with the same line. If you across pastors, if you listen, there's a reason for that. Because if you even if you didn't pay attention to the middle part, maybe, 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 maybe. So anyway, here's the real question for you though. The real question, part of the real question here is how you get people to listen. Or uh, actually, you can't, shouldn't say it that way how you get people to engage, which has been the whole thing for the last 10 years about beauty and mystery and all the other things, because we are becoming a more and more non-thinking, non-linear, non-rational society. And if you don't believe me, I'll just introduce you to any teenager. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Any, they just, they're just, it's just not in them. In fact, if you talk to kids, God help all of you. here's the thing, if you talk to kids and you start to explain to them, like you just did, very cogently, they, no, they won't even, they don't even, that doesn't even register. They just tell you something like, they'll say to you something like, hey, smoking dope is just like you're, you're, it's it's like smoking dope to our generation, except I'm not supposed to call it dope because that's heroin. So, sorry, (laughs) smoking weed, I have to adjust all my, you know, uh, they can't even talk anymore. Um, is is just like is just like your is just like is just like your generation drinking beer. So the logic doesn't even all the brain stuff and blah blah blah. It doesn't matter. It's just like this A is to B. This B is to, that's the logic. <laughs> you can't you can't say that. <laughs> how how old is the guy? Case closed. So, how old are you? Yeah, you, I thought you said you were 47 at the beginning. I didn't ask her blindly. She said how old she was. I was just double-checking. So, you're 47, he's 28. There's, no, there's nothing else to say. You're a completely rational 47-year-old, and he's a completely postmodern 28-year-old. Good luck. So, this is, this is the whole question of how you're going to engage people who actually don't think linearly A, B, C, D. Good luck. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know. 
All you can do, well, <coughs> actually, yeah, I can't tell you that story. That's too fresh. So, okay. Well, no, no, no. So part of it, no, I mean, here's the thing. I've had several engagements lately with people and their, about their kids. Usually, and I don't mean teenage kids, actually. These are 20-year-old kids. What do you do with these kids in the 20 to 30 bracket? And what happens always is, what do, pe- what do parents want to do? So if your kid is 20 to 30, you're 50 to 60, Okay. So what do kids, what do parents always want to do? they got kids that are off the rails. So the reason this connects is because they're not doing, let's say, compassionate things, or they're not thinking a particular way, or they're doing so. So what do parents always want to do? They want to sit down and have a talk. Yes, exactly right. And you know what they, so they write me and they say, you know, I'm getting this talk together. It's about nine single-spaced pages. And I just want to know if you'd like to add two or three pages that you really might think might make the point. I know, and it's like, I'm thinking to myself, you might as well, you might as well just give them a Somonex. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah, first thing we do, you'd have to get the earplugs out of them, right? So here's the challenge. The challenge is, so let's just, to come back to the story, the, the challenge is, how do you move people, in this case, how do you move people to compassion um, without... When, you, when logic is no longer a very effective tool. You notice that actually for Jesus, he doesn't actually, this isn't pure logic. This is in some sense an appeal to the heart. It's also an appeal to shame. It's also appeal to, um, um, I can't think of the word. It's, it's also an appeal to duty, right? You have some sort of duty as a priest or as a Levite, or as a human being. It's also an appeal to um, morality if you think the question is an honest question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? So let's just take that for a second. What's wrong with the question, what do I do? You remember, we didn't read this, but you remember the story, right? So the question is set up. He stands up. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's wrong with the question? So both of those are right. You have to be an heir, although this Jewish guy would have thought, I am an heir, right, because he's Jewish. Okay, but, the, but you can't actually, you can't choose to be a son or a daughter. You can't choose to be an heir. Somebody does something to you. So the question is illicit on the faith, face of it. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus, of course, deflects the question by saying, you know, and this is my first thing, um, you know, I mean, you know this old joke, right? Why does a rabbi answer a question with a question? Is it wrong for a rabbi to answer a question with a question? <laughs> Which, if you, watch, if you watch Jewish dialogue, it is amazing how often this happens. If you just watch it, how often a question is answered with a question. It's just crazy stuff. So, um, you know, if you have a Bible, it's Luke. I, we probably, oh, actually, it's in, well, you can look in your Bible, or you can just look in the book. It's actually easy, easier, I think, in the book. Um, 285, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So I do something to inherit. He says to him, so answers a question with a question, good rabbi, what's written in the law? How do you read? And then he gives him, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And he says, good job, if you do this, you will live. And of course, for something to be Violated, you only have to think of one example where you didn't love somebody. 
you know, where you didn't love somebody, and so then you don't get in. So what, what basically he tries to do is define the playing field. Who is my neighbor? So you want to try to get that down to a manageable point. Uh, and Jesus then, or and I, at point three, he wants to justify himself. And so the question for you is, you know, um, who's easier to love or who's harder to love? Which way did I write it? doesn't matter. Who's easier to love, God or your neighbor? Who's easier to love? Why is God easier to love? <laughs> One is, yeah, he's unimpeachable. So you have, a little more, you have a little more thoughtfulness. Why else is God easier to love? Exactly right. That is exactly right. Yeah, but it's just not quite as, you know, you can't like, you, you know he's right there, but it's just not that annoying to do this. Although, if your kid was right there, ignoring you, earphones in, being a complete postman, that would be annoying. Or your next door neighbor. You know, your next door neighbor, is your next door neighbor annoying? Good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> right? Okay, so, I mean, you know, uh, it's hard to love people. Why? Because they're icky and they're close. You know, your kids, don't your kids drive you just crazy some days? Yeah. Wouldn't you like to just say, go back to school, break is over? Yeah. Like to say that sometimes? <laughs> easy, easy over here. <laughs> Val, get the paddles. Thank you. So, I mean, and so Jesus takes the harder case. Now, you can make, I mean, on another day, in a different circumstance, you can make a case that it's harder to love God, and I would take that as well. But at least in this case, Jesus clearly sets it up that you're, Neighbor is harder to love, okay? And then this question of who is my neighbor? Hey, background, this is really weird. So we were in Jerusalem and um, buying liquor, okay, because we were short. And, you know, I can see this guy eyeing me up, you know, as we come through the door. And, you know, this is uncomfortable because rockets are over our heads and blah, 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 you know. So I, I just, you know, you just have this sense and as I moved through the store, I mean, he moved kind of with our group and then with me. And then finally, I must have looked like the weak link, like, you know, that yak that gets outside the herd. And like, they, you know how they attack? I'm like, Ngh. so that must have been me. Um, you know, so he asked me uh, if I was, uh, he asked me for alms. Now, this is a guy, he's, so he's basically a modern day uh, beggar. He asked me for alms. And I said, you know, I sort of brushed him by. And then he asked me if I was Jewish. Now, why the connection? So later I was talking to somebody about this. And actually, um, Dennis Wente told me, interesting, he has Jewish partners. Dennis must have an interesting, he's got an interesting office. He's got Jews. Then there's Dennis, who's like, you know, rock star Lutheran. And then he's got Muslim people in his office. That must be a very interesting law office. But one of his Jewish um, partners, friends, somebody in the office gave him money to take to Jerusalem to give to somebody. Isn't that interesting? Because one of the ways that you fulfill the law is generosity, right? So you find money. So that is the context for this guy approaching me. So if he presumes I'm Jewish, and I'm clearly a tourist, you know, I mean, if he presumes I'm Jewish and I'm clearly a tourist then part of what I should be doing is giving alms. Isn't that interesting? And part of what Dennis was doing was trying to find a good target because he needed to give this money away to somebody. Isn't that interesting? So it's the expectation of what happens 
in context. You have to hear the story, you know, in context. The problem is, is that Jesus is unmanageable. Jesus, you know, actually asks you to love the hateable. And that's the hard part. Jesus sort of expands the playing field, the perimeter. He expands the perimeter beyond, not just beyond what we're comfortable with, he actually expands the perimeter beyond what we can actually manage, right? You can't actually manage. And the priest, so, and Holly did a good job of this, um, of kind of defending the priest. Here's the thing, there's this priest who's probably a pretty upstanding guy. I mean, he's probably just, he's upper middle class, he's doing his duty, he loves his family, he's commuting, you know? Uh, it's a tough commute. It's a little bit dangerous. He's been away from his, you know, his wife has been calling him, get home, you got some stuff to, you know, the gutters are clogged and stuff doesn't, the water heater, you know. So, um, you know, he's not such, a, and, and yet, uh, as explainable as that, as explicable as his actions are, Jesus is unaccepting of that. Yeah? Question? Yeah, I know. I know. The regulars. Who said that? Was that you? Yeah, you commute. It's very difficult. And it's difficult when it's when there's a dozen. And the regulars. Yeah, right, I know. Yeah. What do you think? What's the, uh, yeah, right. Right, absolutely. I don't know. What's the right answer? I was thinking how the story is, I think, trying to get us to look at how many rules we have between us and doing the, just doing the right thing. Yeah, it's a great, yeah, but right. Then I'm thinking that these postmodern, the, the people who are of the heart would really hear Jesus because those things aren't in the way, or they don't want those rules in the way. They, they have other, yes, I agree, although if you probe them, they do have their own set of rules. Yes, they do. Like, for example, not listening to anyone over the age of 50. Yes. yes. But I, I, the, 30. Had a girl, Mary. Way to show it. Way to rally for the sixties. Yeah, you're right. That's right. And one of the interesting things is how he appeals. It actually is logical. I mean, it's one, seven, two, six, three. Boom. There's the middle four, right? But it is also an appeal to the heart, which is, makes him a little more effective, maybe, than we are. Yeah. You know, it's been interesting, the number of people, even in this, our extended community, there, there have been over the years a number of people whose parents or kids have kind of, they're not completely gone missing, but they know they're homeless or somewhere, or they know they're living under that bridge or on that street. It's been very interesting over the years for that to happen. Um, one of the, 
You know, at, at the very least with this, um, you know, you might just check yourself in terms of bumping up your compassion and maybe toning down the number of rules that are between you and other people. I mean, maybe you can at least begin to think about this. The enabling question is a honest question, and what you deal with in your job is, are honest issues because you do have people who work the system, and you know you've all sort of been through this. And on the other hand, though, there are people who you know stand in the cold in the street corner and sell newspapers every day, and so you know it's not going to hurt you to buy a newspaper from you. You're never going to read. It's a difficult thing. Um, you know, part of what Jesus does, and it was very interesting, if you go back and read Bailey, if you didn't get to read him, you know, he says how dangerous it would have been for this Samaritan to go into Jericho among the Jews with a wounded Jew, that he actually puts his life at risk. That's a very interesting thing to think about. And also, um, you know, he ups the ante by saying if the guy didn't pay and gets better, he could sort of turn him over, to, he, could, he could sell him as a slave, um, you know, to pay off his bill. So, um, what happens is the guy whose damage remains vulnerable for a very long time and completely dependent on the return of the Samaritan to kind of clean up his bill. So <clears throat> there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in this story. Um, but, you know, what it might prompt you to do is kind of extend your boundaries or sort of let your boundaries kind of fall away. And then in the practical things, you have to figure it out. I mean, we have, you know, people who come in not all the time, but people who are on the street know, people who come by here know the best time to get to us is 12.32 on a Sunday because everybody is gone except for us and we want to go home because we're tired. And you know, they, Or on an evening service like you know, at 7.40, everybody's disappeared and it's just us and we want to close the door and it's dark and it's cold and what do we do? You know? So, you know, you, but you have to kind of think that through and decide. But I guess I would urge you on the side of compassion and certainly of kindness. I mean, part of the story is not just about is not just about compassion. It actually is a story about you know seeing more thoroughly, you know, not hating. Uh, it is certainly about loving, and then love actually takes some concrete form. Yeah, good. Last thing. Go ahead. Right. Good. So his, he, he put it one way, is you become a neighbor by your actions, right? So you become a neighbor. So maybe that's a, that's a way that encompasses Holly's question, too, and Donna's as well, which is how can you become a neighbor to this line of people who are there? Which then calls for some measure of cleverness, you know, and appropriateness, right? So, but at, le- at the very least, you sort of, uh, this should make us see more broadly and uh, be more interested. And actually, I mean, just to kind of push Holly's point, um, <clears throat> to actually, ex- you know, to get resources in place to help insofar as we're able and insofar as it's healthy for people. So, all right. Uh, we'll just do the next one the next time, whatever that is. Is that all right? So come back uh, next week. We'll do 23, The Rich Fool. All right. All right, let's pray. Let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, good. Thanks.